Francais Beaujau, this is At the Edge of Canada with TJ Phillips, bringing you weekly check-ins with all the major players in the indigenous intellectual community in southern Manitoba and across the country. This week's show, we head out to Montreal, traditional Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg territory, and we talk to DeKel, professor in the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill, Dr. Alan Downey. Alan has recently published a new book, The Creator's Game, Lacrosse Identity and Indigenous Nationhood. I've been waiting a long time for this one, to talk to Alan about this one. As you all know, I, I research sport and indigenous gender and the constitution of indigenous masculinities and identities. The Creator's Game is a phenomenal piece of indigenous sport history. It gives us a glimpse of the life cycle, the creation the removal and the revival of lacrosse in Haudenosaunee communities and Squamish communities and the game that is shared by, prayed to, lived, and worshipped by Indigenous folks. It's a great conversation. Alan is a remarkable scholar and just a really good person, and I'm happy to bring this one to you, you here this week. This is Dr. Alan Downey on At the Edge of Canada. what's funny about this book is I I've spent some time in southern Ontario and and in the Quinney area Tainanaga area so I know a lot of six and a folks Haudenosaunee folks and um so I've been snapchatting them pictures of the cover of the book and and I'm like and and then with the caption he's gonna be on my show tomorrow (laughs) and then one of my friends responded back and they said big germ and and I was like Wait, is that is that the dude on the front? And they're like, yeah, that's that's him. And it turns out this is actually his brother, Big Germ's brother, Lyle. Yeah, it's Lyle play. Thompson on the cover. Yeah, um, yeah, who's become such an amazing and uh, quite famous lacrosse player. The entire Thompson uh, family has been kind of just incredible to the game uh, and representing the Iroquois Nationals. Yeah, that's so cool, and I, I just love how people were, uh, with no disrespect to you, Alan, they were very interested in hearing from Big Germ if that was going to be the case. So I think that's amazing, the the fanship that's out there and the, and the people who love the Iroquois Nationals team for sure. That's so cool. Yeah, they definitely have a big following, and uh, they're, they're way more famous than, uh, uh, I think they're probably some of the most famous lacrosse players ever, so uh, no, I don't take offense to that at all. Uh, <laughs> Uh, hopefully it's not a disappointment to people to see that it's not it's uh it's not going to be Jeremy on the show. <laughs> you do start us with Delmore Jacobs's story, right? And he's Cayugan. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Out of Six Nations. Yeah. Yeah. He's Cayugan out of Six Nations, and you start us with with his story of Falling Sky Woman, and yep. I, I and I'll be honest, I'm a Métis guy from the West. These stories are not my stories. I haven't heard a lot of them, but I've lived in Haudenosaunee territories. And seeing that story in this book was one of the most savory bits of prose I've read in an academic book. I was just 
eating it up because of the knowledge and the way he tells it and the way you capture it in this sort of um, in, in this really co-created and consensual way. And I, I really love you starting right there. Uh, that I can't say anything but thank you for those words. That means a lot to me. Um, and ultimately, the credit goes to Delmore, and the credit goes to all the elders and Indigenous knowledge holders and community members that I was able to work with because uh, this book is a reflection of their expertise. This is, mm. this is, I was just lucky. I was just lucky enough to have the time and space to be able to um, put these words together. And, and basically, I was an organizer uh, in this process. And so I was really lucky just to work with some incredible people, and uh, Delmore being one of them, along with many others that I worked with. They're in the book. They're, you know, front and center again. But, um, you know, I, I learned a great deal. Part of the big pro- part of the process of writing this book was actually learning. Um, I got to learn a, a great deal about myself. Mm. Um, it, 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 I became, um, I would say, self-reflexive about my research, about mm. uh, my community commitments, my responsibilities. Um, so making sure that this work was, you know, being presented in communities uh, at multiple levels, whether it was on the radio station or at, uh, I do a lot of stuff with youth and working in um, kind of post-secondary education institutions or secondary school institutions mm-hmm. um, or culture centers and making sure that the, the community knew what was going on the whole time. But um you know, just to be able to sit with, um, you know, these elders and these knowledge holders, it was an incredible, incredible experience where, um, you know, it was pushing me to learn more about my responsibilities, about my nationhood, mm. about my identity as a Dekel person from Nagazi Wetton. But it was also giving me an opportunity to have confidence in that um, while learning from other Indigenous nations. And that was a kind of an incredible journey. And you can see that kind of throughout the book. Um, with the various creation stories that are included, and um, and really the, how the creation stories are kind of combining with personal experiences, um, and, and these incredible, incredible stories about the the game of lacrosse and about indigenous nationhood throughout. Hmm. That's uh, I love that self awareness. Uh, we and this, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, but our research focuses are similar or adjacent to one another. And so while I was watching you work through this process as I am working through my dissert, I'm dissertating. Yeah. I could see the same points in your process where I'm sure you felt anxiety or you were self-conscious or you were, you were concerned about, am I making the right kinds of contributions? And am I making the right kinds? As I extract this knowledge, am I also replacing that extraction with, with something that I'm giving. And, and one particular area for me that really stood out was, was when you started to talk about lacrosse in residential school and how yeah. difficult it is to talk about sports in residential schools because for so many survivors, it was a, source, it was an escape source, it was a, a point of relief, and, and it was a point of um, a way of getting away from some of the harms and some of the horrors of the place. But then you have to write about it critically in those spaces. Yeah. And so I was, I was, I wanted to ask you down the road, but we can do it now. Um, how, how did you negotiate that emotionally and intellectually? That, that was a tough one, um, and because I understand, um, you know, my grandmother went to a residential school. That legacy lives in our family, um, 
and and it's going to for generations. It's not. It doesn't end with me as much as I try um, to make sure that it does. But uh, and so this is very much. This is very close to my family's history and to um, my family experience. My family's experience, and so you know, I was very conscious of that the entire time. About there are these stories that. Um, we have residential school survivors that are telling these stories about these, these incredibly empowering stories about how sports saved their life or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, was the highlight of their experience during the residential school experience. And in no way do I ever want to take away from that. I have, I have no right to do that. Nobody does. Um, and, and then on this other side of it, um, to talk about it critically, I think, is also important. And not about the experiences, and that's not right. what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is how sport has been employed by the Canadian government and by these residential school administrators as kind of an agent of colonialism. Mm. That the reason why these sports were introduced in the first place was to teach Indigenous youth to be better Canadians, to, mm. um, uh, to remove them out of their kind of what they thought was their savagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the administrators. And so they employed sport as part of that. They saw sport uh, as being kind of this uh, agent that could further their goals of assimilation. Hmm. Um, and so I'm still critical of this today. Uh, the values and the, the, the things that were taught in sport, um, they're, they're designed and created and formed by very specific people from very specific communities with very specific agendas. Mm-hmm. And this happened in residential schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so to kind of take a, a bigger picture and look at the bigger picture, the examination, kind of the structure of this thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the points that I want to look at specifically about residential school, and you borrow from Janice Forsyth in her own right, an incredible Indigenous uh, sport history scholar, is... Yep. The 1910 book of calisthenics put out by the Department Department of Indian Affairs. Tell yeah. us about why that book was so transformative. It's almost like it's a fulcrum point in the 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 series of uh, the cycle of removes and resurgence that this book takes on. And when I say that, I mean you start us in the crea- in a creation story, a Cayugan creation story, and you lead us yeah. back to Haudenosaunee resurgence through a number of different removes and revivals. But that 1910 book of calisthenics for me, uh, distributed by the Department of Indian Affairs, written by Dr. Bryce, was that fulcrum point in a series of removes of the, the sanctity of lacrosse uh, for Indigenous folks. Yeah, so in, in around 1910 and 1907, um, Peter Bryce, who's working for the Department of Indian Affairs, um, is writing these really critical reports about the health conditions in residential schools and the egregious health conditions mm. and death rates. And he's warning them, stating that they have to do, um, make a number of kind of systemic changes to improve uh, the conditions at these schools, and basically they silence them. Um, and the government pushes them out. Well, one of the interesting things I think happens now... We don't know who wrote, or at least I don't know, and I haven't been able to track down who wrote this little booklet uh, in 1910. So hmm. it's this calisthenics booklet basically outlining some exercises that uh, the children should be put through. Hmm. 
and it comes from the Department of Indian Affairs, and they're basically handing this thing out across residential schools. Now, the idea, and Janice Forsyth makes the argument that the idea behind this was it was a cost-effective means um, to basically address these egregious health records. And rather than uh, doing it properly, or rather getting the expertise of health professionals or whatever it might be into these residential schools and improving the conditions and the actual facilities, is that they started promoting this idea of exercise. And a lot of the, the wording in the booklet ends up kind of matching very closely to what Peter Bryce was actually writing at the exact same mm. time. Um, so what's interesting about this and why it's such a kind of important document, I think, um, is because it's one of the very first, um, I would say, official policy. It's not really an official policy rather than just kind of um, an, an initiative, but it's one of the kind of first big, wide initiatives. Uh, it's not the only one, but it's one of the big ones that we see in the residential schools that's basically stating that sport should be employed because not only can it, is it a cost-effective means for improving health, but it also can contribute to our assimilation efforts of Indigenous youth. Hmm. Um, and so, again, we hear these stories, and they're really important stories, and I'm not trying to take anything away from that from survivors. I would yeah. never question that about the importance of sport in residential schools for an individual's experience. But when we look at it, as a system, as um, mm -hmm. a kind of in the bigger picture of things, um, what we see is sport being employed uh, as part of this, what the TRC called the cultural genocide of indigenous youth. Mm -hmm. um, and they're doing it in a very specific way, and I kind of talk in detail about that in the book. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very well said, and I think what is so important to take away from that is that in the attempt to improve indigenous health, in residential schools, sport was the cheapest way to do so, and yet not entirely effective in improving those health conditions. No, it's not successful at all. Yeah. Actually, at certain at certain residential schools, it gets even worse, um, and so the death rates go up, the sickness rates go up, tuberculosis rates are going up at certain times. Um, it depends where you are and mm -hmm. what school, um, but certainly it does not work, no. And, and that is such an important point to remember about what that document did uh, biopolitically and yeah. the myth it was selling about sport that unfortunately was just bought and sold by every designation that was running a residential school in this country. And, yeah, we see. We and sorry, see sorry. That, um, go ahead, Alan. Yeah. Yeah, we see, what we end up seeing is. Um, there is no official policy for sport in residential schools, as Janice Forsyth mentions, until basically the 1940s, late 1940s, 1949, um, I believe is the date where they finally get an official kind of policy. And, it, it's, and there's initiatives happening earlier. But what we see is actually um, residential school administrators, principals, um, taking sport up as, and recognize it. And they're writing about it extensively, about mm -hmm how they feel that this can help indigenous, assimilate Indigenous youth. Um, it can instill uh, a gender binary. Hmm. So they're teaching um, Indigenous boys how to play soccer and hockey and then trying to 
uh, instill kind of Canadian values, what they consider Canadian values at the time, in into the into these uh, Indigenous boys with Indigenous girls. Um, they are play, playing sports here and there, but uh, generally they um, are doing activities like skipping, going out for walks, um, dressing dolls, and they they reflect upon this mm-hmm. uh, quite extensively in their annual reports every year. Hmm. It's almost fetishistic by the administrators at that point. The reification of these stale, well, I consider them stale now, but at the time they were probably quite hot ideas of how to form ideal Canadian bodies and masculinities and femininities and sport is that vehicle. And it just drives me crazy that these administrators had this, for all intents and purposes, shoplifted book from Dr. Bryce and we're running it out there on these indigenous youth and caught and, and, and this is what happened. It, it, it bothers me so much. It angers me so much biopolitically how that operated. It's certainly, um, it's, it's infuriating and certainly, um, it wasn't limited to residential schools. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have these things called Indian sports days at the turn of the 20th century. So in the early 1900s, um, where Indian agents and uh, local kind of politicians are supporting these kind of initiatives where uh, they would have on holidays, usually, um, Indian sports, uh, mm-hmm. with indigenous peoples coming out. That's what they're called, Indian sports days. Um, and they're being promoted because they think of, that is, these administrators, these politicians, um, these people that are in part, partly, in, you know, that are part of the Department of Indian Affairs, they think of sport as their space, mm. as a Western construct, mm. which isn't true. Um, and certainly Indigenous people have agency in these spaces and carve out uh, paths of control and power through them, but they don't recognize it most of the time. So that's, this is kind of the really interesting part of the story, is that, yes, these um, residential school experiences of using sport in the... Um, with the goal of assimilating Indigenous youth, it's infuriating. But I don't ever want to take the agency from Indigenous people, of course, because mm-hmm. um, they're doing some amazing, incredible things with these sports, mm-hmm. um, whether it be political, or, uh, political organizing, um, fighting for Indigenous rights, fighting for uh, Indigenous land claims, whatever it might be. Um, we actually see them using people like Andy Paul and mm-hmm. uh, later the Iroquois Nationals mm-hmm. uh, and the Haudenosaunee Nation women's team um, actually end up using sport to further indigenous sovereignty movements, mm-hmm. to further indigenous rights, uh, even activism within the League of Nations and eventually the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're using sport to do this, which is an incredible thing. Um, and that's kind of the powerful part of this story. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about one more removal uh, in the history or the lineage or the cycle life life cycle of yeah. lacrosse, and that's William Beers and his colonization of lacrosse. Yeah. Uh, in my own studies, I've come across Billy Beers, and I uh, would love to find a really, really analytical documentary about him come out. I would really love to read that because everything I picked up, I never picked up anything directly. I've only ever picked up stories about him and other things. Yeah. Tell our tell our listeners who William Beers was and what he did to lacrosse and at the in the in, in amateurization and professionalization in Montreal. 
Yeah, so William uh, George Beers, or W.G. Beers, is, um, in the 1850s and 1860s, is um, the key player in the colonization of lacrosse. Hmm. I call him the architect of the colonization of lacrosse. Um, whereas he's been held up um, as, it's just uh, do a simple Google search of W.G. Beers, and you'll see um, words like father of modern lacrosse or, mm-hmm. um, you know, father of all these various organizations. Um, and I, I don't, I don't see them in that light. Actually, I, again, I call them the architect of colonization of lacrosse, um, in the book, but ultimately what W.G. Rears does is after seeing the Genyagahaga from Ganawage, Akwesasne, and even, uh, um, the Onondaga from Onondaga, um, actually performing this game for non-Indigenous audiences, what W.G. Beers does, and he doesn't act alone, so I can't say it's just him, but he is the primary architect of this thing. Uh, what they end up doing is in the 1850s, they form a Montreal lacrosse club. These are middle-class Protestant men, um, very kind of influential Montreal scene at the time. Uh, Beers himself is a dentist. What ends up happening by the 1860s, um, they start appropriating the game of lacrosse as part of a kind of un- what they identify as a unique Canadian identity. Hmm. So in 1860, Beers writes these, uh, a set of rules. In 1867, he rewrites them, and they form the first national organization in Canada. Um, they do that in Kingston, but it's, it's between Kingston and Montreal. Um, and most of this stuff is happening in Montreal. The kind of organized sport. Um, the way organizations and various bodies are being formed, non-Indigenous bodies, that is, are being formed in the Montreal area. Of course, sport pre-exists uh, contact and colonization and all of these things, so I don't want my listeners to get the wrong idea. <laughs> well, what Beers ends up doing is writing these rules, and one of the first rules he writes in in 1867 actually partially bans Indigenous players. Hmm. And then what ends up happening is the idea behind claiming lacrosse as a distinct, unique identity for Canadians mm. was that Beers is looking, is this kind of ultra-nationalist that's looking to um, separate Canadian identity from British or American identity, and basically stating that, here, look, we are unique because we appropriated a game that is of this land. It gives legitimacy to their claim to this identity, that it comes from Indigenous peoples. If Indigenous peoples are of this place, they are actually from this territory, and they claim this lacrosse game from Indigenous peoples, that gives them a unique, legitimate identity to place. So it's key, it's, it's key that Indigenous peoples are involved in this process, or at least their game is involved in being appropriated in this process it legitimizes the Canadian identity. Um, and so what I kind of state in the game is, as soon as they come up with a motto for their National Lacrosse Association, it says, our country, our game. And it, they really are tying it to the appropriation of territory and the appropriation of an Indigenous game. Mm-hmm. So here they are, kind of, um, as part of the logics of settler colonialism, um, appropriating and removing indigenous people physically and kind of conceptually, and then creating something anew, uh, which Patrick Wolf would say. And so the thing that they're creating new is uh, kind of 
uh, a reformulated game of lacrosse. Mm-hmm. By 1880, Indigenous peoples are banned outright from the game of lacrosse mm-hmm. in Canadian organizations and championships. Uh, they still play exhibition games. They still go on tours, but they're not allowed to officially compete in Canadian national championship competition. And these rules expand out to BC, out to San Francisco, and to other places across Canada where Indigenous peoples are banned. Hmm. The way you frame it in the book, with yep. the opening story, and then you dig into the history of of lacrosse and into the into the first chapter, into the second chapter, and W. G. Beers writes the rules of lacrosse is yep. to me after reading the creation story, the Cayuga story by Delmore. And, and hearing that and have you uh, stylize it for us and then to get to Beers's outright colonization of the game it makes him such a detestable character because the audacity you have to have to take a, a game gifted uh, to the nation of the people to the epistemologies of those people to the, the theory of lacrosse in Haudenosaunee communities and other indigenous communities in Turtle Island and just write your own like that that yeah. version of white settler audacity is the most detestable to me and it drive drove me crazy when I read your book and it drove me drives me crazy when I do my research too. Yeah, I mean in his in his writings um he's kind of front, he puts that kind of front and center that uh he detests indigenous people, he <sighs> thinks that they're um they're, you know, from a savage race and all of this idea of the noble and bloodthirsty savage. You see this quite explicitly in his writing and his claim to in, uh, to this piece of indigeneity and in that the idea here was that they could claim a what he sees as a savage sport. They could take it, uh, reformulate it, and then end up creating something new out of it. So to scientifically regulate it was his idea behind this. And it's, again, it's not just him. It's the Montreal Lacrosse Club. It's the Montreal yeah. Amateur Athletic Association um, that are doing this. And why it's so important that I'm talking about beers and the Montreal Lacrosse Club is because Canadian organizations end up emulating themselves after those organizations. Mm. So they're looking at their rules. They're looking at how they form their organization, how they ban Indigenous people, um, and what they end up doing is just recreating those organizations in places like um, Southern Ontario, mm-hmm. in D.C., in mm-hmm. Halifax. Uh, so they really do turn to Montreal as kind of the hub of organized sport at this time. But, of course, we cannot forget that Indigenous peoples had their own rules. They had their own expectations mm-hmm. of uh, physicality. Um, so these things all predate Beers' written rules. Um, it's just that he did it in a very specific context at a very specific time um, among a very kind of specific and uh, influential group of people. Hmm. And I played lacrosse with a bunch of folks, uh, Haudenosaunee folks from um, Walpool Island. And um, I played for about five minutes. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, I, I can't do this. Uh, this game's t- it's super sacred. I'm just a chubby Métis guy. I can't keep up. And to, <laughs> and to have the <laughs> to have the audacity beers to take this game and make it your own, uh, it blows me away. The amount of arrogance that's operating in that. On the flip side of that problematic individual is <coughs> Alan Paul, uh, who 
who is really, uh, if 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 Beers is the architect of the colonization of lacrosse, then Paul is probably one of the architects of Squamish um, lacrosse identity and nationalism. Tell us, tell us about Alan Paul. Yeah, it's uh, Andrew Andy Paul um, out of out of the Squamish Nation, um, and an incredible story, an incredible person in his own right. Um, you know, outside of lacrosse. Um, very famous indigenous rights activist um, had been kind of really a key player in the 1920s, 1930s um, when it came to indigenous rights and came to indigenous land claims specifically for the Squamish Nation. Uh, but what Andy ends up doing is Andy learns lacrosse. Um, he's exposed to it at a residential school. I can date the introduction of lacrosse into the residential school at the exact same time that Andy's there. Hmm. Of course, lacrosse is at this time from 1890 upwards is fairly big in the North Vancouver and Vancouver area. So the Squamish are in North Vancouver, um, just across the Lionsgate. That's the traditional territory. And what ends up happening is in about 1917, 1918, we get the formation of Squamish lacrosse team. Now, these Squamish lacrosse teams, they're playing in these Indian sports days that are being held in Vancouver, um, and they're actually they're playing the game um, because it's quite popular. They're introduced to it. Uh, they had a game of lacrosse before uh, colonization, um, but I'm talking about this kind of new form that, unfortunately, beers ended up appropriating, but it does go national uh, across the territories. It goes across uh, the world, really, um, and so they get involved into this game, start forming their organiza- their own organization. Well, Andy Paul leads these early teams, along, among other Squamish leaders, um, and Andy Paul ends up creating a team in the 1930s called the North Shore Indians. And this team was kind of uh, the most important or one of the most significant teams in Vancouver's history. I'm not talking about just Vancouver Indigenous history or Western Indigenous history. I'm talking about sport history in general. Um, they were widely popular in the early 1930s and mid-1930s, um, where their fans by the thousands would come out to watch this game in the middle of the Depression and, you know, paying money to go see the Squamish lacrosse team. What Andy Paul ends up doing is using this team to basically engage in the media um, expose indig- non-Indigenous people to Indigenous people to Indigenous communities. And you see, we end up seeing uh, Andy Paul and the players from the Squamish team, they're actually connecting to the game as an Indigenous game. What's really interesting about this is they're introduced to it in residential schools where they're being told, as a great Canadian citizen, this is what you do. You play the game of lacrosse because it's our game as Canadians. Um, and it's a performance of whiteness, I argue, in the book where they're trying to teach Indigenous youth how to be white or, hmm. um, and assimilate them. But what in the Squamish do is they actually gravitate towards the game not as a pursuit of Canadian citizenship, but actually towards it being an indigenous game because the roots of lacrosse had continued to be celebrated because remember it gives legitimacy to the Canadian identity. So those are part and parcel. It's really important that you kind of quote unquote celebrate, even in these really kind of racist ways 
the, the game's connection to Indigenous people because it gives legitimacy to a Canadian identity. But what ends up happening is the Squamish take that and say, we're playing an Indigenous game as Indigenous people. And so they gravitate towards that. They combine their nationhood um, for these players. And, it, you know, it's not... It's not to overstate the fact. Like there are lots of people not playing lacrosse. There are lots of people that are not watching these games. But it still remains significant that it becomes this kind of nexus for kinship, for nationhood, for identity, and even um, kind of combating the residential school experience in the Squamish, uh, in this kind of Squamish history of the game. Hmm. I love. And I said Alan, and I meant to say Andy. I love Andy Paul's story. I think it's amazing, and I'm I'm really glad that you uh, you brought uh, him into the like that you that you shone the light on him and and made him such a powerful character uh, throughout this story because he is and uh, is so important for Squamish lacrosse and Squamish uh, identity and uh, nation building. The life cycle of lacrosse throughout this entire book reaches its resurgence apex towards the back end of it as you talk about Haudenosaunee uh, resurgence and Haudenosaunee identity confirmations and and the building of the Haudenosaunee peoples and the confederacies again into these really strong centers of of spiritual, emotional, physical, intellectual uh, solidarity. Um, It's all centered for me about lacrosse and I'm going to get you out of here on this question around the stick. Tell us about how sacred the stick is to to the folks who play lacrosse and specifically the you know the members of the Haudenosaunee nation yeah the stick um the stick for the Haudenosaunee and um all indigenous nations i would say is the key it's the key because that thing is the connection to the land it's the connection to the epistemology it's the connection to um the medicine it is a connection to everything that lacrosse is. And for me, that lacrosse stick is the connection to the theory of lacrosse. Um, just as we have various theories in the academy and outside of the academy, whether um, it be post-colonial theory or whatever it might be, um, for me, my theory and the theory I was uh, able to kind of um, grapple with and to be exposed to is that lacrosse stick. And I'm very careful... Um, not to not to speak to the epistemology, mm-hmm. not to speak uh, out of turn uh, or for the communities that I actually worked mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is, um, you know, Delmore Jacobs and Rick Hill and uh, the Paulus family, um, their words are kind of front and center uh, of the work in when they're talking about this. Because as a non-Haudenosaunee person, um, this, this wasn't for me to do. It's kind of mm-hmm. actually a refusal, uh, using Audra Simpson's work to say, we're only going to tell you what we want to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's kind of a, a powerful, uh, it's a powerful moment between all of us writing this book, all of us speaking to these uh, topics, to be able to have the power to be able to do that. Um, it's really important. It's significant. Um, but that lacrosse stick... Um, it means it means everything. It is it is the connection to everything that lacrosse is to the epistemology um, to to what lacrosse means to indigenous communities. It, it all takes place through that stick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know it's it's been just such a privilege to be able to learn from the elders, knowledge holders, and community members, and um, former lacrosse players and families of lacrosse players. 
uh, about this game, about this stick and what it means. It really has taken on uh, a new meaning to me. Mm. Um, it's really taken on this life of its own for me. Um, what that stick means and, and how it was my connection to, to my community and to my identity and to my responsibilities, uh, to my clan, to my mm-hmm. family, to my community, to my nation. Um, and I, I really do think that that's part of the healing power of this game. I think that's part of um, really just ultimately the power of the game and of that lacrosse stick. Yeah, it's so cool. And the story of why the stick is so important to communities and to players is such a lovely story. And I really appreciated reading it because I have lived uh, in Haudenosaunee territories. I I just appreciated it immensely. I also once almost touched a friend of mine's stick and I nearly got run out the room. So it is, it is, you don't mess with the magic in the stick ever. And, uh, I just keep a low profile and try to stay humble as a ignorant Métis guy from the prairies. Alan, I could talk to you about so many other things in this story, the creativity, the, uh, trickster characters, uh, uh, word warriors, uh, that you that you, you model the work after. There's so many things we can dig into from a methodology perspective and content perspective, but we we're we're out of time. So I'm gonna have to thank you here, um, Alan. The Creators Game: Lacrosse Identity and in Indigenous Nationhood, a must read for anyone with an affinity for the game and who wants to better understand Indigenous cosmologies and epistemologies and and uh, history. Um, Alan, for everything you do in the name of Indigenous sport history, uh, Indigenous youth work, Indigenous lacrosse, carrying forward Indigenous knowledges, and just being a rock star Indigenous academic yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. At the Edge of Canada is produced at the UMFM studios on the University of Manitoba campus in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The University of Manitoba is situated on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the O.J. Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. You can get all updated podcasts and live streams for At the Edge of Canada at umfm.com, or you can listen to us live on the UMFM app. The lead track is Nahewak Starlight. And if you like what you hear from me, you can follow me on Twitter at tfillers. Up next, your campus today. <laughs>